For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi. Welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet. I will be your host as usual. And today we're going to be covering Revelation chapters 12 through 14. And these chapters coincide with the Come Follow Me curriculum that uh, is coming up this week here in uh, December. And uh, I'll tell you right up front, uh, these three chapters, which I refer to as the flashback chapters, are some of my favorite in the entire book of Revelation. So I'm really excited to be able to share the content with you, and uh, hopefully you can be as excited about them as I am by the time we're finished. Um, a couple of things that I want to uh, talk about by way of introduction to all three chapters is to keep in mind that the entire flashback is chronological, and it goes from a point in time from the period of the Grand Council in the premortal existence all the way through to the end of the second woe immediately before the start of Christ's second coming. So we still have the third woe coming up after the flashback chapters are finished, but this chronological sequence that I just described to you is what we're talking about in Revelation chapters 12 through 14. So it's not just that chapter 12 flashes us back to the premortal existence. We're talking about three chapters that begin with the Grand Council, then go all the way back through to the Second Coming. And when I say go all the way back through, you have to remember that when we ended our podcast last Sunday, we were talking about what John was describing at the end of chapter 11, specifically the five verses found in Revelation 11, 15 through 19, because in those five verses, John summarizes the content of the third woe, but he doesn't do anything more than simply introduce this period of time when the last destroyers of the earth will be destroyed. And so what he says specifically in Revelation 11, verse 15 is this, quote, and the seventh angel sounded, and by that he's referring here to the third woe. Let me start again. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And sounds a little bit like Handel's Messiah, and it should because these words are essentially borrowed from Isaiah and allude to the prophecies of Isaiah, uh, his messianic message talking about the birth of the Savior and how he shall reign for... Okay, no singing on the podcast. Uh, but at any rate, uh, so that's where these words come from. Now, they're, they're words that are very significant because they're going to come up again uh, in the context of our flashback chapters in Revelation 12 through 14. And so essentially what John has done at the end of chapter 11 in his dialogue, he's brought us right up to the point of the start of the third woe, 
when Christ is going to reign forever and ever. And now all of a sudden, as he goes into chapter 12, he flashes back to the premortal existence by way of saying, now let me tell you how we got here. And that's the message. We get right up to the second coming, and then Jesus Christ's message through John the Revelator is, let me show you how we got here. Let me give you the context for what John just introduced to you in these last five verses in Revelation chapter 11. So as we go into Revelation chapter 12, what we're going to get is we're going to get a flashback to the premortal existence and the premortal war in heaven. And we also know that in this time period, Lucifer is defeated in Revelation 12.10. And so salvation then comes in premortality at the end of the war. And when you get to that verse, which we'll put up later, but essentially when salvation comes in premortality, it comes by the strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. The same or similar words that John used to describe Christ's victory at the second coming, he uses to describe Christ's victory over Lucifer in the premortal existence. And so these same words are essentially telling us that history is going to repeat itself. And so we're having this flashback to the premortal existence and the war in heaven because it provides a historical context for Christ's victory at the second coming, but more importantly, and equally important, it provides the pattern for Christ's future victory. If you want to know what victory was like in the premortal existence, even though you can't remember it, you look at the prophecies about what's going to happen at the time of the second coming, and one is essentially going to mirror the other, and vice versa. What we learn about the victory of Christ and Michael and the premortal hosts of heaven against Lucifer and the hosts of hell in a premortal context provides the pattern for what we're going to see happening at the uh, second coming. Now, I have to warn you, as we begin our discussion of Revelation chapter 12, that this chapter is frequently misunderstood and also frequently misinterpreted. It's a, a chapter that is also the most modified chapter in the Joseph Smith translation. So he did a lot to clarify the content of Revelation chapter 12, but even though we have these clarifications, it still tends to be rather significantly misunderstood. And I'm going to highlight some of the things where these misunderstandings occur. Um, but we're, we're thankful for the Joseph Smith translation that made so many revisions beginning right in the very first verse. And so what I want to do, for those of you who are watching this on video, uh, we're going to put up a side-by-side -side comparison between the King James Version of Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, and the Joseph Smith translation version of that same verse. And so you should be looking at them right now on your screen. And I'm going to, for those who are on audio, uh, I'm going to read the uh, King James Version, and then I'm going to read the Joseph Smith translation version, highlighting the, the rather slight but very significant changes that he makes. So in the King James Version, he says in verse 1, Quote, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Close quote. Now, as we look over to the right and we're comparing that with the 
Joseph Smith translation, it says, quote, And there appeared a great sign in heaven, in the likeness of things on the earth, a woman clothed with the sun. Close quote. So if again, if you're looking at this in the video, you'll see that some of the language has been bolded. And those words that you see in bold on your screen are essentially the word differences between what we find in the King James Version and what we find in the Joseph Smith translation. So by, by way of highlighting those, jo the King James Version talks about uh, the appearance of a great wonder in heaven, and that has been changed to a great sign in heaven. That change is actually consistent with the original Greek manuscripts, where the more appropriate word to use would have been sign. So Joseph Smith's change essentially is conforming to the, uh, the underlying Greek in that respect. But then he adds a phrase that is wholly new, and after you see the great sign in heaven, he specifically tells us that this sign in heaven is, quote, in the likeness of things on the earth, close quote. That's the phrase that he adds, and it's an important phrase that tells you essentially everything that I'm about to tell you concerning the premortal existence and this great sign, this woman clothed with the sun, Everything about her in a premortal context is in the likeness of things on the earth. And that phrase is much forgotten by interpreters, even within the church, because they fail to recognize and distinguish those verses in Revelation chapter 12 that are talking about the premortal existence and those verses in chapter 12 that are talking about the likenesses of those images on earth. So what you need to understand, and <laughs> you know, I don't mean to tell you how to mark your scriptures, but if you want to mark your scriptures, here's something that you can do. You can look, it, open your book up to Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, and somehow indicate in the margin of your scriptures that verses 1 through 12 are all premortal. These are the signs in heaven, and they're all in strict chronological order. And they run from the time of the Grand Council to the end of the war in heaven when Satan and his angels are cast down on earth. So you, you put that in your margin. Then we come to Revelation chapters 12, verses 12, verses 12 through 17, the things in those verses are the likeness of things on earth, and they also are in strict chronological order. And it's important to note also that the content of the verses do not repeat, and there's no overlap. What am I suggesting? What I'm saying is that the content of the premortal signs and wonders in heaven in verses 1 through 12 do not repeat nor is there any overlap between what sounds very similar in verses 12 through 17. Now, I'm going to flesh this out a little bit more, and we'll see the illustrations of how this occurs, and I'll probably say this again, that we don't repeat and we don't overlap. What we're seeing in verses 12 through 17 is essentially Christ's earthly church and Satan's war on that church from the time of the crucifixion until 70 AD. And I'll explain where we're getting the 70 AD and, and these other things as we go along. This is what you just kind of need to understand as a bit of an overview. So when we dig into the details a little bit more, then 
it'll make a lot more sense. Now, once we get to 70 AD, at the end of chapter 12, we roll right into chapter 13, and it continues without interruption. In other words, what I'm saying is chapter 13 starts at the place where chapter 12 ends in 70 AD, and then it continues chronologically into chapter 14 and ends at the time of the second coming. And to be more precise, at the end of the second woe of the second coming. We still have the third woe to go that won't start until chapter 15. So that's how the chronology works, and that's kind of just the, uh, the overall perspective of what's going on in the 17 verses found in Revelation chapter 12. Now, once you understand these concepts, then it becomes pretty easy to figure out what is being talked about in these various verses. So we're going to see this woman in verse 12, who's clothed with the sun in heaven, she's going to represent the pre-mortal church of God. And so later on, when we get down to verses 12 and 17, guess what? The woman shows up again, but she's no longer the pre-mortal church of God. Now John is describing this woman as the earthly church of Jesus Christ that he organized during the meridian of time. And that's where some of this confusion comes in because it's the same woman, but it's in two very different settings and two very different time periods. The same is also true. You're go we're going to see her again and again, in fact, because eventually by the time we get to the second coming, the woman has become the bride of Christ. And so we're going to see her married to the Savior, um, and we're going to have the marriage, and then we're going to have the marriage supper, all of this dealing with the parable of the king's marriage feast. Then when we get, by the time we get to chapter 21 in the book of Revelation, we're going to see her again. Only this time she's going to be the wife of Christ, now celestialized. So essentially this woman is going through an evolutionary process where she began as a woman clothed with the sun in pre-mortality and evolving all the way until this church, meaning me members of the church who qualify for exaltation, uh, become the church of God and of Jesus Christ, the celestial church, the bride of Christ, the wife of Christ, all of these things, and it's the same woman. Now, she, she changes. She doesn't stay static. Nothing is static about the Church of Jesus Christ. It is an evolving organization uh, at different periods of time. And so you just need to understand that. And if you understand the distinction between what she's doing in pre-mortality versus what's going on in the meridian of time versus what's going on in the last days. By the same token, even as we sit here today, what we have is we have the restored Church of Jesus Christ that is the same as the Meridian Church, but they're two different churches in the sense that they exist in two different time periods, even though they are the same church. And that's the same concept with this woman that we see in, uh, in various contexts. And we keep those kinds of things straight. It's very helpful. The other thing that's really important about this to your understanding is that 
is this isn't limited to just the woman and her image. Everything that's going on, we see a dragon, we see a man-child, uh, we see other images of a wilderness uh, in the first 12 verses of Revelation 12, and then we see these same things, a man-child, a wilderness, and, and other things that are happening in the uh, verses 12 through 17. Again, what happens on earth is in the likeness of what happened in uh, in premortality. So the reality of it is, when you recognize that these types of patterns exist and that there is a very close correlation between the images, suddenly you know a lot more about the premortal existence than you thought you knew. Even though you can't remember it, it is this type of typology and these patterns that allow you to understand exactly what happened in the premortal existence. And unfortunately, a lot of people kind of fail to recognize them because they just kind of mix and match these images and say, oh, John's just repeating himself, or this is something that is being expressed again for emphasis. And that's just not the case. John does not repeat himself and everything is chronological. And once we understand that, then we're in good shape. Now, the other thing that I need to caution you about concerning Revelation chapter 12 is it assumes that we know certain things about what happened in the premortal existence. And if you don't understand certain things uh, about pre the premortal events, then the, some of the premortal existence and what John describes in Revelation chapter 12 can be a bit confusing. And so some of the things that he assumes that we already know about are, for example, the existence of a spirit creation. Before we ever get to the Grand Council in Heaven, which is where Revelation chapter 12 begins, there was already this spirit creation where a heavenly father and a heavenly mother procreated their pre-mortal children who were spirits that lived with them and were taught by them and tutored by them for some period of time, perhaps a long period of time, before the Grand Council occurs. So this is one of the assumptions that I think John kind of just assumes. We already know that backstory, so I only need to go back as far as the Grand Council in heaven. The other thing that's important that I think is something John assumes, and if he doesn't assume that we know it, is something that you do need to know in order to be able to understand what John is saying in Revelation 12 concerning the Grand Council, specifically the fact that as part of the spirit creation, there is a concept which I refer to as the order of creation. The order of creation is a, my shorthand way of saying that there was a fixed methodology used by our Heavenly Father in the creative process. It, it goes across all spiritual creation. So we have a spirit creation, we have a physical creation, we also have a creation at the time of the resurrected where we go from physical to immortality and eternal life. All of these creative stages or processes have a defined order and manner in which they occur. The Lord doesn't do anything haphazardly. And so there is a fixed methodology that he employs, um, and it is governed by this order of creation that is fundamentally driven by 
the law of obedience. Um, and so, I, unfortunately, I can't get into this in, in great detail. One day, I'm going to devote an entire podcast to talking about nothing other than the order of creation and how it operates. But for our present purposes, it's sufficient to understand that as dictated by the order of creation, there were a fixed number of spirit children who attended the Grand Council. So what I'm saying is that before the Grand Council ever began, our Father in Heaven, our Mother in Heaven, ceased having children. What? What? That's new to me. Uh, how do you know that? And the reason why that has to be, there are a lot of reasons, but the, the simplest that I can explain in this context is simply, at the time of the Grand Council, which we tend to understand, I think, generally pretty well. All the spirits were in attendance. The Father presented the plan of salvation, and a vote was taken. Uh, the, the Savior was selected as the creator, as the redeemer, and we had a chance to vote on him. That's why there was rebellion, because there were certain of them in attendance, namely Lucifer and his followers, who said, no, I'm, I don't accept uh, I reject. I rebel. All right. Well, everybody had to be in attendance to participate in the vote. You couldn't have Christ appointed as the creator and redeemer and have that be a done deal. And then some of them show up late and say, oh, I missed the vote. <laughs> I mean, it would be the ultimate denial of their agency if they got there too late and uh, suddenly they don't get a vote because they showed up late. And so that that fundamentally is the reason why it must be, but there are lots of other reasons uh, and, and eventually someday we'll get into it in more detail. But essentially you have this fixed number that attend the Grand Council and in terms of the overall order of creation, it's not limited to the creation of a fixed number of premortal spirit children. It has to do with a fixed number of uh, spirit worlds that are created, spirit animals, spirit plants. Essentially, before we get to the Grand Council, the spirit creation is complete. All right, and there are lots of reasons why that has to happen. Now, why do we care about that? Why do we care in the context of John's description of the premortal existence, the status of the spirit creation? And the reason is that because essentially the Revelation chapter 12 deals with the concept of the physical creation. Remember, we get down to the end of the war of heaven. Lucifer and his followers are cast down onto earth. Where did it come from? It had to be created. When was it created? What about all these other worlds that we read about in Moses chapter 1? Countless worlds and worlds without end and all of these other worlds. Where do they fit in to John's discussion of the premortal existence? Because somewhere in the background, there's something's going on with them. And that's why I kind of bring this up. And John just kind of assumes that we know about these things so that by the time we get to the end of the war in heaven and we're cast down and, on, and Lucifer gets cast down onto an earth, a physical earth, everybody, he just assumes, you already know about that. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a good assumption, but that's essentially what happens, all right? Now, another issue that uh, we need to talk about very briefly is 
where did this grand council take place? And naturally it begs the question, what do we care? Why do we care if it's on uh, Spirit World X versus Spirit World Y, whether it uh, happened in the place where our Heavenly Father dwells and has his throne? Was it the place where we were born uh, as spirit children of our heavenly parents? And, uh, you know, it begs all these kinds of questions. Well, think about this concept. Now, we know that in the premortal existence, when we were in the Grand Council, there's this uh, dispute that comes up, right? Lucifer rebels, which introduces uncleanness, sin, bad things. It's comparable to the fall of Adam on earth when sin was introduced. Well, what happened when Adam fell? Because again, all these things have their likenesses on earth. And so when Adam fell and sin was introduced through his transgression upon the earth, well, the father and the son who had been with them personally in the Garden of Eden left. They could no longer remain in uh, the presence of the father and the son, namely Adam and Eve couldn't, because they were no longer clean. They were no longer innocent. And God cannot dwell in unclean places. So he had to go someplace else. So now let's assume for just a second that the Grand Council occurred on the residence, the celestial residence of God the Father where he has his throne. All of a sudden, you've got all of this dispute, you've got this rebellion, you've got this evil, uh, you have this wickedness, and it's all been introduced right into his own celestial kingdom. Well, that can't be. So guess what? We got to have a different place for the Grand Council to occur rather than on the Father's celestial residence. Now, again, it begs the question, okay, what do I care whether it happened? If we accept for a moment, yeah, that makes sense. It could not have happened on the Father's celestial residence. What, what difference does it make about where it was held specifically? Well, when you get down to uh, Revelation chapter 4, Revelation 12 verses 4 and 5, guess what? It tells us that when this rebellion occurs, it says Christ, who's the man-child, was caught up unto God and to his throne. So here Christ is in the Grand Council. There's this rebellion and he goes away. Oh, sounds a lot like the fall of Adam and Christ and the Father leaving. If you don't understand anything about where the Grand Council occurred, you don't appreciate what John is telling you in these verses. He just kind of assumes that you know about where the Grand Council must have occurred and the fact that it did not occur on God's celestial residence. Okay, so now introduce Kolob, the concept of Kolob. And I, I may have talked about Kolob in some of my prior podcasts, frankly, <laughs> I don't remember. Okay. But at any rate, we have this, the concept of Kolob that is described in pretty good detail in Abraham chapter three. It's also set forth in the facsimiles and a description of how it is the uh, first in government. It is the a planet nearest the throne of God. Um, it's a celestial spirit world, and it was the first world of the Father's spirit creation. Now, why do I bring it up in this context? Uh, you're already a step ahead of me. So, oh, is that where the Grand Council occurred? And the answer is yes. Okay, how do we know that? And the way that we know that is because Joseph Smith 
wrote a poem in 1843 that kind of correlates to the vision he had in the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. So uh, for each verse in DNC 76, there is a poem, and verse 7 in section 76 corresponds to stanza number 7 in the prophet's poem. And we're going to put this, I'm going to put up both of them so that you can see what is said in the seventh verse of the Doctrine and Covenants, and then how Joseph Smith poetically described that same content in stanza number seven in his poem from that was published in the Times and Seasons in February of 1843. So for those who aren't seeing the image, this is, sec, this is verse seven in DNC section 76, quote, and to them will I reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom from days of old and for ages to come will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. Okay, that's verse 7. And that was in 1832, by the way, uh, because the poem is written 12 years later in 1843 in uh, Nauvoo. But this is what stanza 7 says, quote, from the council in Kolob to time on the earth and for ages to come and to them I will show my pleasure and will what my kingdom will do, eternity's wonders they truly shall know. Close quote. Okay, so that's, that's the verse where Joseph Smith has identified the Grand Council as occurring on Kolob. So for you lovers of poetry, you know, you, you may not, uh, you may already be aware of this important poem in our uh, church history. Um, for others, you might not be aware of it, but there are other reasons. I, I just highlight this one begin, because again, this is a prophetic pronouncement essentially by the prophet Joseph Smith um, that helps us to understand that the Grand Council occurred on Kolob which goes a long way in all it so explaining why Kolob was the first of our Heavenly Father's spirit creations, not of people and things, but of worlds, the first world that he created as a celestial spirit world that then, as I explain later on, will also become the spirit world within this earth. You have to kind of understand these dynamics to really appreciate what's going on in Revelation chapter 12. And that's why I'm taking a little bit of time to try and help you understand that. Okay, so now with that in mind, the, the next thing that uh, we need to spend just a little bit of time talking about is what happened between the time of the spirit creation and the Grand Council that is then held on Kolob. This is what we refer to as the first estate, but it's a period of time that could have lasted for eons of time that uh, are, as children of our Heavenly Father, we were instructed and we were taught. It compares a lot. Again, if you talk about the likenesses of things on the earth, we're talking about little children who are born and until they reach the age of eight, after having been nurtured by their parents, they don't reach the age of accountability until they reach the age of eight. And so was it also 
in the in the period of our first estate before the Grand Council. We're learning, we're being instructed, we're, we're taught truths of the gospel, but we also weren't doing anything wrong. There was no sin. We couldn't sin because as soon as sin occurs at the time of the Grand Council, then we can no longer be in his presence. So we didn't have accountability before the, the Grand Council. Why? Because the Father hadn't implemented the plan of salvation. We were taught things just as little children are taught by their parents. But then when they finally make covenants at age eight and enter into the waters of baptism, then they become accountable, all right? And if you do something wrong, it means you have to repent. So up until that point, everything's fine. We're living in the presence of our Father. We see our elder brother, Jesus Christ, and uh, everything's great. Until now, we're going to have the Grand Council when accountability begins, the gospel is instituted by way of covenant. Everybody is present, so everyone stands on equal footing to be able to accept or reject the, uh, the plan of salvation, to accept the Savior or reject him as the uh, Redeemer, as the Creator. And as we know uh, from our readings in uh, Moses chapter 4, in particular, Lucifer and those others that were accountable for the use of their agency and were highly enlightened, uh, they rebelled. And so Lucifer and one-third fall away. And that's where we have the in uncleanness that begins in heaven, specifically on Kolob. The sinless environment ends, and all of this is typical for the fall of Adam and the pattern that there existed, because that also ended a, the sinless environment in Eden. Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence after that fall. And so essentially, we, when we talk about the fall, it's important to know that there are spiritual falls and there are physical or temporal falls. And when Lucifer fell in the Grand Council, this was a spiritual fall. And I emphasize that point because we haven't reached the end of the war in heaven yet. We're still in the Grand Council. He falls spiritually to a lesser spiritual level. He's spiritually banished from the presence of God, but he hasn't been thrown down on earth yet because it hasn't even been created yet. All right. The fall or the creation of this earth does not coincide with the events of the Grand Council. The Grand Council was a planning session, and after it was completed, then the creation proceeded, but it didn't start with this earth. And so again, this is something I'll, I'll get into as we talk about the creative processes and this concept that I've already introduced as the order of creation, because essentially there is this order that has to be followed and the creation of this earth coincides with the end of the war in heaven, not its beginning. So the fall that we talk about in connection with Lucifer and the one third, specifically in Revelation 12, 4, that's going to be a spiritual fall during the time of the Grand Council, not his physical or temporal fall at the end of the war in heaven. Again, these are all concepts that are important to understand if you're going to truly figure out what's going on in Revelation chapter 12. All right, so as we get to the end of the, uh, the Grand Council, the physical creation does begin. It's, it's ready to begin by Jehovah, 
who was Jesus Christ, and others who were faithful followers of Jesus Christ during the Grand Council. And so after the preparations are made, uh, and he basically is designated uh, to be the physical creator, a right that he had as the firstborn of the Father in the Spirit. He held the birthright for this position. He was not only qualified because he was sinless, but also because he was the firstborn and it was his right. So when Lucifer says, hey, send me, I'll do it, I mean, <laughs> it was out of order, needless to say. It could never have been because uh, Lucifer didn't qualify for the position just by virtue of that he was not the firstborn son of God in the spirit. Okay, but at any rate, so we get the foundations laid for the start of the physical creation, and then this is where this order of creation kind of kicks in. And something you need to understand about the order of creation is how they proceed and how the processes reverse themselves as you go from the spirit creation to the physical creation to the spiritual recreation at the time of the resurrection. In other words, the creative processes reverse themselves so that the last is first and the first is last. This is set forth in the uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 29, verse 30. And this is what it says in that verse. But remember that all my judgments are not given unto men, and as the words have gone forth out of my mouth, even so shall they be fulfilled, that the first shall be last, and that the last shall be first in all things, whatsoever I have created by the word of my power, which is the power of my spirit, close quote. Now, a lot of you, are, I'm sure, are familiar with this concept about the uh, order of preaching the gospel. So we have an order of creation, we have an order of preaching the gospel. And we know that it went first to the house of Israel, and after it went to the house of Israel, then the gospel preaching will go to the Gentiles of the earth, and after it's gone to the Gentiles and the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then it will revert back to the house of Israel, and specifically, the gospel will then go to the Jewish people. We understand that. First shall be last, last shall be first. But this verse, DNC 2930, is talking about the first shall be last, and that the last shall be first in all things. And then he adds, whatsoever I have created by the word of my power. And this is where we get this concept that between the spiritual creation, the physical creation, and the spiritual recreation at the time of the resurrection, the orders all get reversed. Now let me say this in summary fashion. Essentially what happens when the spirit creation occurred in heaven, in pre-mortality, our Father in heaven began with the most intelligent of all his creations, and that was Jesus Christ. So the spirit creation began with Jesus Christ. Now this tends to tell you a little bit about what was even before the spirit creation. Uh, and the fact that we understand that we are eternal in nature and that before we were ever spirit bodies, um, we were intelligences that had the power to receive and assimilate light and truth. And in that context, before the spirit creation, there was one who was the greatest of all, and that was the Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it was his right, his privilege, 
according to the law of obedience, to be the first of all God's creation. And from there, where does it go? Well, if you start with the very most intelligent person and thing, then it proceeds down from there. And the down is all of God's spirit children were created in descending order of intelligence until he gets to the last spirit child, and then he proceeds with the next class of creation, which would be the animal kingdom going from highest to lowest. And then he goes to the next kingdom, starting with the plants from highest to lowest. And then he goes to the fourth and final kingdom, which we call the mineral kingdom, and goes from the most intelligent of spirit worlds, meaning kolob, I've already mentioned that, to the least intelligent of all worlds of the creation. And that's the spirit creation. It all happens in this descending order of intelligence. And when you get to the very last world of spirit, then we're ready for the spirit creation to begin, or the physical creation to begin. And guess what? That's where we find ourselves at the time of the Grand Council. But everything is going to work in reverse order. So the last world of the spirit creation becomes the first world of the physical creation. And that's where Jehovah and the other spirits who followed him, who were faithful, who accepted the plan of salvation in the Grand Council, then began with the physical organization. And they began working themselves back up until they got to this world called Kolob, which is the most intelligent, that happens to be the spirit world within this earth. And that is what coincides with the end of the war in heaven. Okay, so that's the process that's followed. I've given it in kind of an abbreviated form, and you're all sitting here, you got <laughs> you got smoke coming out your ears right now. Say, oh my gosh, this is a lot to digest, and, and it is. But this is what you have to understand if you're going to understand the verses that John is talking about in Revelation. So um, what you have to understand also is that Jehovah had to create a number of worlds. Remember when when we had the Last Supper, and Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Well, he's, they have to have physical worlds for them to go to, with the exception of sons of perdition. We'll leave them out. I'm not going to discuss them. Uh, it gets into a whole nother discussion. But we have to create telestial worlds. We had to create terrestrial worlds and celestial worlds. Celestial worlds are those worlds upon which people dwell and they have mortal inhabitants um, and there are lots of reasons why that has to happen but then <clears throat> we also had to have a place for the terrestrial people to go and the telestial people and what we learn in the doctrine and covenants section 88 verse 40 it says for intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence wisdom receiveth wisdom truth embraceth truth Virtue loveth virtue, light cleaveth unto light, close quote. Now what that means in the context of creation is this. You don't send celestial people to live in the celestial kingdom. And by the same token, people who qualify themselves through obedience to live in a celestial kingdom aren't relegated to live on a world that is designated and controlled by telestial law, all right? So celestial 
cleaves to celestial, terrestrial to terrestrial, telestial to telestial, and all of these things have to be matched. And so when we come to this concept of the creative processes, all of these worlds had to be created as a place for some time in the future for those people who don't qualify for the celestial kingdom living on a celestial earth, they're going to be removed. Same way we got to remove people at the time of the second coming because they didn't live at least a terrestrial law. You get rid of them. They, they don't get to hang around. And so when this earth is celestialized, the only people that end up here are celestial worthy people. And we don't subdivide and say, okay, let's make this part of the earth is going to be terrestrial and this part will be, no, not the way that it works. Christ has created all of these worlds according to the order of creation so that when people by their own disobedience disqualify themselves to live on this earth as their celestial kingdom, there will be other places for them to go that are also worlds that will be uh, redeemed through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so this, this is all very uh, a process that involves not only this earth, but you have to take into account and into consideration what's going on in these other worlds. And some people will tell you, well, we don't really care. That, that doesn't concern me. And I, I don't disagree with that wholly, but I do ask the question, if the Lord didn't think it was important for us to understand anything about these other worlds that, he, that exist and their creation, why does he talk about them? <laughs> Go to the first chapter of Moses, and, and he's talking about them. And if that's not important for us to know, why do we even take the time? We got lots of other things that we could be paying attention to, and yet he describes them. Uh, in the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, we talk about worlds that have been created, the countless worlds that have been created. Apparently, the Lord thinks this is something that we should know and is sufficiently important that he talks about it. So I hope that you kind of start to catch the, the grasp of the importance of this. And if you're not getting it yet, don't worry, because when by the time I get to a discussion of the actual verses in Revelation chapter 12, suddenly the importance of these things, the order of creation, are going to become more important. And so that's where we find ourselves now. Having all this background, what I basically have gone through for the last little bit is this concept that these are things that John assumes that you know as he gives this abbreviated discussion in, in 11 verses about the premortal existence, which is which are all typical of events on the earth. <clears throat> and so now that we hopefully have a little bit of a foundation to begin our discussion, we can go on to our discussion of Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. So took me a little while to get here, but here we are. And this verse says, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, just by way of reminder, um, in this verse, the Joseph Smith translation changes a great wonder to a great sign. And this was also where we added the phrase in the likeness of things on the earth. So we kind of talked about this verse a little bit already, but this is the, the description because we know we're in verse 1, 
It's part of the premortal existence description. And so the woman represents the premortal church of God. The father organized this premortal church in heaven during the Grand Council on Kolob. And that occurs as the father introduces the plan of salvation and asks for a vote by common consent. That's the formation of the church. And for Lucifer and his rebellious host, essentially they established the church of the devil in the premortal existence or the church of Lucifer in the premortal existence. And so these kingdoms always kind of arise together as explained by Brigham Young, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and so this is one of those instances where the creation of one brings about the creation of the other. Now, this uh, woman in heaven has various interpretations. Um, commonly, uh, people associate this woman with Christ's earthly church. And for reasons I have already explained, and I'm probably beating a dead apocalyptic horse, is we're still in the premortal existence. So you can't assume that this is the woman on earth because we're still in the premortal existence. And even those who say that uh, this woman in verse one represents the uh, earthly church, they struggle to figure out an earthly time frame that fits with the imagery used by John in his vision. Uh, some other people interpret this as uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, but of course Mary did not give birth to a church. Um, the idea that the woman represents the premortal church of God is clarified in the Joseph Smith translation in verse 7, where, which says this, quote, And the dragon prevailed not against Michael, neither the child, nor the woman, which was the church of God, who had been delivered of her pains and brought forth the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Okay, so there again you have uh, the Joseph Smith translation adding some important information where he specifically identifies the woman as the church of God. And again, because of the, the context we're in, it's clear that he's talking about the woman as the premortal church of God, which, going back to verse 1, has its likeness in the earthly church. Okay, so here we have the organization of the, uh, the church of God, where Jesus was also um, selected to be the creator, the savior, the redeemer. We get a sustaining vote, vote, but it's a highly contentious gathering because of Lucifer's rebellion and offering himself. And the fact that one-third of all of the hosts of heaven rejected the plan gives us some sense of just how contentious this was. Now, when this one-third rejected the Father's plan and rejected Christ as the Creator, Savior, and Redeemer, Essentially, they became permanent members of Lucifer's church, meaning both premortality, mortality, and for all time. They made an irrevocable decision that they would follow Lucifer, and from that time on, they committed the unpardonable sin for which there is no forgiveness, and that it was unpardonable because, of course, they sinned against such great light as they all had there in the premortal existence where they all walked by sight and not like we walk today in faith. Now, so that was one group. 
when the when the rebellion occurs, you have Satan and his one third uh, as one group. Then we have a second group that are the sons of God, those who held up their hand during the vote and says, I accept the Savior, I accept the plan, and essentially they accepted all of these things by covenant and therefore became the sons and daughters unto God and members of Christ and the Father's pre-mortal church. These are the people that we call the noble and great spirits that Abraham saw in Abraham 3.22. Um, and so that's another group. So the third group that we have are those who were uncommitted during the Grand Council. And some of you are sitting there, well, I thought basically everybody had to make a choice, uh, yay or nay. And uh, eventually that's true, but that is something that they had to do during the war in heaven. We're still in the Grand Council, so we can't get ahead of ourselves. So here in the Grand Council, you had those opposed, those in favor, and those who couldn't make up their mind. Now, that's the whole purpose for having the war in heaven eventually is because at some point, those people are going to have to commit. And that's what missionary work was about. That's what a lot of what was going on was to try and persuade them to come over to the side of accepting by covenant the gospel of Jesus Christ in the premortal existence. All right, so that's that's essentially what's going on. Now, the premortal woman, it says she's clothed with the sun. And uh, so essentially, this is the spiritual light of Christ that existed within the premortal church. And uh, we also see her um, having this crown of royalty that represents the, uh, the governing power of the premortal church. And there were 12 stars in the crown representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And some might suggest, and some scholars have said, well, these, rep these 12 stars represent the 12 apostles. And that mistake is made because they're thinking we're talking about the earthly church. We're still in the premortal existence, and therefore the interpretation has to coincide with the priesthood that existed in premortality, which was patriarchal in its nature. And it derives from the 12 tribes of Israel. And so eventually we're going to talk about that some more when I get to go down further and talk about individual verses. So uh, I think that's sufficient information right now to give us a sense and to help you understand as you read these verses exactly what it is that we're talking about. So now let's go on to Revelation chapter 12, verse 2. And it says, And she, meaning the woman, the premortal woman, the premortal church of God, she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. Now, having already explained to you the context in which we're seeing this woman as the Grand Council in Heaven, having suggested to you already that the Grand Council gathering was a highly contentious affair, we should not be surprised that John is describing it in symbolic terms as this woman who's trying to give birth to a child but is in great pain because of the delivery. As the church of God was organized 
in the Grand Council, it was not a pretty sight. It was not pleasant. It was painful, like a woman, the church, trying to give birth to this child. And who is the child? We'll learn about him in just a moment because he's referred to as the man-child. But that's where we're getting this concept. And there's many misinterpretations about this, mostly because scholars focus this verse as though it is something that is happening on earth. And so they'll say, well, this deals with the mortal birth of Jesus Christ. No, I'm sorry, it doesn't. Uh, others would say it deals with the growth of Christ's ancient church and the trials and tribulations, the persecutions that occurred as the church was kind of growing and developing like a little child would. Um, and uh, there certainly were a lot of trials and difficulties uh, during the, uh, the early history of the ancient church, but that's not what it's describing because we're still in verse 2. We haven't gotten to 12, which is the start of the earthly. So all of these things have their earthly likeness. So yes, you should see some similarities because these things all have their likenesses. But still, at this point in time, we are dealing with the church in the premortal existence. Okay, then as we come on to verse 3, it says, quote, There appeared another wonder in heaven... And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, we're not going to get into all of the details of the symbolism of the great red dragon. It's sufficient to know that in the premortal context, you had the woman who's pain to give birth. And you have this great red dragon who we recognize is Lucifer, and he is the source of the woman's travail. He's the one that created all the controversy and the disputes and the trials in the premortal existence during the Grand Council. And his fiery red color symbolizes murder and destruction and the kinds of things you would expect to see. And again, there are a number of misinterpretations of this dragon because there a lot of people think it's being described in an earthly context and so they'll they'll say well this is satan's early earthly dominion in the roman empire and they talk about heads so just understand that we're not going to get into that in any great detail uh, it's sufficient to know that this is basically a continuation of the grand council in heaven so what happens when Lucifer rebels in the Grand Council, the dragon faces the woman. Verse 4 in Revelation chapter 12, quote, And his tail, meaning the dragons, drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, a couple of things that we have to say here, first of all. Notice the distinction between the woman, who we know is the church of God, and the child. They're two different things. If you try and connect the two of them to get together and say the woman and the child are both the church of God, you're mixing metaphors, and, and it's not the way that it should be looked at. And so uh, keep that in mind. And the other problem that we're going to encounter is we're going to see how the woman and this child later show up in these later verses, which is part of the cause for some of the confusion that exists. But the bottom line is you essentially have this tail of the dragon taking this third part of the stars of heaven. And the stars of heaven here refer to, of course, 
the spirit sons and daughters of God the Father, and one-third of them making an irrevocable decision that they were going to follow Lucifer. And so from among that fixed number that were in attendance at the Grand Council, uh, one-third of them, and that's not necessarily a one-third numerical number, but it is one-third as in a group of people. Remember, there are three groups that exist in the, in the premortal existence at the time of the Grand Council. A third follow Lucifer, a third, again, not a numerical third, but a third follow Christ and become members of the Church of God, and then that third part not numerical, but the third part of undecideds, all right? Now, it could be that it is a third. I don't know. Uh, the short answer is it doesn't really make too much difference. It's just sufficient to know that there was a, this third group that uh, followed Lucifer, and it says it cast him down to the earth. Now, I'm going to show a comparison now between what is stated in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, and what is stated in verse 9, because similar language is used. So you should have that up if you're viewing this on your screen. Here's what it says in verse 4. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to earth. Then if you go down to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says, And the great dragon was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now the language is very, very similar, which leads a lot of people to conclude, oh, John is just repeating himself. He's uh, waxing eloquent. He's, uh, he's making saying this as a point of emphasis, all right? And my answer to that is no, that breaks the rules. John does not repeat himself. He doesn't do things even for emphasis purposes. We're talking about two different events that are extremely remote in time. One of them, namely in verse 4, we're talking about the, the grand council in heaven. The other one, which is in verse 9, is after the war in heaven that could have lasted millions of years. We don't know, but it lasted a long time. Why do we know that? Because during the time that the war in heaven was going on, the Savior was creating countless worlds, countless celestial worlds that our Heavenly Father's spirit children could occupy as mortals, much like we're occupying this earth. Now, this is where it gets into understanding the importance of the dynamics between the creation of this earth and a lot of other worlds that were also being created. And I'm going to talk about this in a little bit more detail, but these worlds are essentially being created in a consecutive order, not simultaneously, all right? And so all of these, and we sometimes describe them as millions of worlds that Christ has created, all of this happening as uh, the uh, apostasy in heaven is occurring, as the war in heaven is occurring. These things happen over long, long, long periods of time. And so to suggest that verse 4 at the time of the Grand Council is simply re-described in verse 9 um, at, the, at the end of the war in heaven. 
it just doesn't jive, all right? And so you, ha you have to keep the time frames in mind, and if you do, then it gets a lot easier to understand what's going on. So then we come to Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, and it says this, She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to her throne. Most scholars correctly identify the man-child in this verse as Jesus Christ, but they fail to recognize that this is Jesus Christ in a pre-mortal context when he was known as Jehovah. So many who say that uh, they think the man-child has to do with Christ's physical birth or mortal ministry have a difficult time correlating the actual imagery with what happened at the time of Christ's birth and uh, uh, what happened during his mortal ministry. Others say that uh, it represents Christ's mortal birth, which can't possibly be true because uh, a church doesn't give birth to uh, a mortal man. Others say that the man-child represents Christ's political figure established during his mortal ministry, and this is problematic because Christ never attempted to establish a political kingdom during his mortal ministry. This was demonstrated by his dialogue with Pontius Pilate on the day of his crucifixion when Pilate asked the Savior, are you a king? Now, if I had been there and was uh, the defense counsel for Jesus, I would have objected to Pilate's question because it's a loaded question. It's vague, both in terms of its substance and as to time. So for example, is the question asking, are you the king of a spiritual kingdom? Are you the king of a political kingdom? Are you the king of a ecclesiastical kingdom? And it's also vague as to time because when exactly are you asking about Pilate? Are we talking about pre-mortality right now today, sometime in the millennium, the celestial kingdom? <laughs> <laughs> and so it goes on and on. But I wasn't there to make my objections to the loaded question. But Jesus answered him anyway and said, uh, my kingdom is not of this earth, which Pilate, of course, understood to mean that Jesus was not establishing a political kingdom to challenge the Roman Empire and on that basis was prepared to acquit him of any wrongdoing, but of course the, the Jews were clamoring for his crucifixion and wanted to have Barabbas released into uh, their custody. And so at any rate, that's essentially uh, why it can't possibly be the case that uh, the man-child in verse 5 represents the establishment of any kind of political kingdom during the meridian of time. But more fundamentally, as, as we fall back on my basic rule, in verse 5, we're still in the premortal existence. So don't confuse that with what happens on earth um, that is something that would be in the likeness only. So what we're basically talking about here is the metaphorical birth of Jehovah during the Grand Council when he was elevated to the status of a god. And that came about because of the actions of the church and the church membership who, by common consent, agreed to accept Christ as the Creator, the Savior, the Redeemer, uh, and essentially God. And so that's how the church gave birth to Jehovah. And just keep in mind here, we're not talking about Christ's literal 
birth as a spirit child of God that occurred long before the Grand Council. So we had the spirit creation long ago. Then we, for a long period of the first estate, everyone is being taught, nurtured, etc., etc. Then we come to the Grand Council. That's the time where we are now, and his birth is metaphorical by his elevation to godhood during the Grand Council by the common consent of the church, by the common consent of the governed, all right? And so now what's interesting is also when you get to Revelation 12, 5, notice how it says that the man-child, after he was born, was caught up unto God and his throne. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, this imagery deals with the ascension of Jesus Christ after his death or resurrection. Wrong. That's earthly. We're still in the premortal existence. Many LDS scholars will say it represents the removal of the earthly church, political or priesthood, at the time of the great apostasy. And again, these are earthly likenesses, but we're still in the premortal. We're still in premortality. Now, in that era, in premortality, Jehovah organizes his premortal church on Kolob, and then, because of the uncleanness that existed in that context following Lucifer's rebellion, he then ascended from Kolob to his father's throne or his father's nearby celestial residence where he then sits on the right hand of God. And so there is a likeness to Christ's ascension from the Mount of Olives, but it is only a likeness because we're still in the premortal existence. And that was necessary because Kolob had become a fallen spiritual world in the likeness of earth after the physical creation, when Adam fell and transgressed and brought about uncleanness in that environment, God the Father and his Son withdrew from the Garden of Eden. So all of these likenesses exist. Um, and what we know about the events on this earth tell us a lot about what was going on in premortality if we can simply keep the facts straight and understand the distinction between events on earth and their likenesses, signs, and wonders in heaven. But the bottom line is when the, when the man-child, Jehovah, is caught up to God in his throne, he is physically and actually leaving Kolob because as one who was sinless, he could not continue to be with the others in that environment. And the thing that we find out in the next verse in Revelation 12, 6, that the woman also then fled into the wilderness. So we have things going on with the man-child who leaves Kolob, and then we have the woman. It says this in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, what does that mean? What I can tell you is that this symbolically describes the premortal apostasy in heaven. This might be a term that is somewhat new to many of you. You probably haven't heard this. The, the concept of an apostasy in heaven is familiar but most people say well the war the rebellion occurred in uh, the grand council that resulted in this great apostasy in heaven and there was war and they lump them all together even though these things happen over long 
periods of time. And so essentially what you have is you have the rebellion that occurs in verses 1 through 5, and then we have the apostasy in Revelation 12, 6. The, the war in heaven doesn't start until verse 7, all right? And so a lot of people just kind of skip over verse 6, and we, we'll go straight to the war in heaven as soon as the rebellion happened. Oh, we got everybody duking it out. But the problem is, in order to have a war, you need at least two combatants. And we know that when the war in heaven happened, or, excuse me, we know that when the apostasy happens in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness. Who's the woman? It's the church. If we're going to have war between the church of God and the church of the devil, the woman just left the battleground. She's not in Kolob anymore because she has fled into the wilderness where she's fed and nurtured for this 1,260 days. And so you can't have a war if the only combatant is Lucifer and his followers. So Revelation 12:6 is a very important kind of breaking point between the rebellion during the Grand Council and when the war in heaven actually occurs. And what we're told here, that period of time lasts for uh, this 1,260 days. All right, so... Part of the confusion in people's interpretation of this is they immediately assume, well, John is obviously in verse 6 talking about the apostasy on earth. And you've got bells and whistles going off in your head right now. I said, no, 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 can't be. We're still in the premortal existence, and John doesn't mix and match. So now let's do a comparison between the language in Revelation chapter 12 verse 6 and verse 14. So on the left on your screen, if you're looking at it now, that's verse 6, and it says this, the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. That's in the premortal existence. Then we come over to the other side of the screen, Revelation 12, 14, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Now the fact that we have this woman, and we have the wilderness, and she's being fed or nourished, and that the 1260 days versus the time, half time and time, um, all of that people just say, well, we're talking about the same event. This is essentially the church going, being driven into the wilderness of the great apostasy on earth, and that violates all the uh, proper rules of interpretation because John does not mix and match, and uh, essentially we now have to understand what each of these two different things mean, all right? And so now let's talk about it in the premortal context uh, first of all, because we had, as I have mentioned, three groups involved in the pre-mortal existence as of the time of the Grand Council. One-third was Lucifer and his sons of perdition. One-third who were the members of Christ's pre-mortal church who now are being taken away into the wilderness to be fed and nurtured for this long period of time. And then the other one-third who are essentially the undecideds. So when, when the woman, the church, flees into the wilderness, you have two groups that are left. You have Satan and his crew, 
and those who are undecided, and they're stuck on Kolob during what I'm referring to as the period of the great apostasy. Now, this can't be the war in heaven because, as I've mentioned before, you can't have a war if you don't have two combatants. Lucifer can't fight against these undecideds because they're undecided. They're not on the side of the Savior. He's just going to beat them and uh, and cause bad things uh, and really create a lot of trials and stresses and everything for them. But he, he, he doesn't have anybody to really fight against. There's nobody in this. And that's the way it was with the war, with the apostasy on earth. You no longer had the church of Christ upon the earth. Lucifer or Satan was here, uh, but he really didn't have anybody to fight with. And you just had a lot of people who were not members of the church, not doing one thing in one direction or another. And so essentially, as we continue to go on, we then ask ourselves, what's going on during this period of apostasy when the noble and great are not there and they've been taken essentially to God's celestial kingdom which is uh, where the man-child had also gone to. And when they're there, uh, you have essentially the conditions on Kolob are like they are upon, during the period of the great apostasy here upon the earth. The spiritual light is taken. You have great darkness, like the darkness of the Dark Ages, of the medieval earth that lasted for more than a thousand years. Uh, Kolob became a sorrowful and hellish place. Um, and you have all of these problems that were occurring, and all the while, the church of God is uh, in heaven uh, with God, and while all these lukewarm and undecided spirits are in the bondage of sin, uh, they were subjected to suffering and torment and the buffetings of the dragon because they were lukewarm and indecisive, but their indecision was not a sufficient ground to cause them to have committed the unpardonable sin. And that's, that, that's why they are not members of Lucifer's church. And so essentially what you have for this period of 1,203 score days is uh, this period of time when these are the conditions that existed on Kolob. Now, what, what do the 1260 years actually mean? We know that they are prophetic days of years because Joseph Smith changed the word days to years in the Joseph Smith translation. And so now, if we want to assume for just a moment that the 1260 years is a literal reckoning of premortal time, then the apostasy identified here in verse 6 lasted 453.6 million earth years. <laughs> now, where does that come from? That comes from the concept that one day on Kolob is as a thousand years of earth. And so we'll put up the calculation here. Uh, you know, you go back to your uh, college uh, chemistry classes and calculating things and trying to keep all the units straight. But essentially what you can see is you have 1260 Kolob years and there are 360 Kolob days in a year. And there are also 1000 earth years per Kolob day. So you do that calculation and that's where you come up with 453.6 million earth years. That's the period of time in Revelation 12.6. Now, I'm not saying that that's the absolute correct uh, interpretation of this verse. I don't know 
if the 1260 years are uh, literal for sure. But all I can tell you is I think what we're learning from this is that that apostasy in heaven when the church of God was in the wilderness being nurtured and nourished is a long period of time before the war in heaven begins in Revelation 12:7, And all of that tends to get ignored and glossed over by members of the church who simply assume that we had a rebellion during the Grand Council, boom, war in heaven starts. Well, according to John, it could have been you know, 450 million years between those two events. And during this time, what's going on? As I mentioned before, this is the period of time when the physical creation was going on. And the physical creation, again, that began with the, uh, with the order of creation such that the spirit worlds were created in descending order. And then you start with that lowest world of the spirit creation becomes the first physical world of the physical creation and Christ is working his way back in ascending order with the creation of worlds without number during this quote-unquote 453 million years until we're ready to begin the war in heaven and when the war in heaven begins Christ is now ready for reasons that I shall explain to create celestial worlds worlds upon which there will be mortal inhabitants trying to qualify themselves to live on their particular world as one of the celestial worlds in God's celestial kingdom. That then brings us to Revelation 12, verse 7, where it states, quote, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels. Close quote. Now, the war in heaven, of course, is a literal battle that occurred in heaven between unembodied premortal spirits. This was a conflict between the premortal church of God, that woman who was in the wilderness on the one hand, and Lucifer and the church of the devil from premortality on the other. Now, what happens is when the war in heaven begins, you get the premortal church of God, the woman who is in the wilderness, and she comes back to Kolob to duke it out with Lucifer and his armies. Oh, gee, that sounds a lot like the restoration of the gospel in 1830. So we had the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ anciently in the meridian of time. It then gets taken away into the wilderness of apostasy. And then in 1830, the church of Jesus Christ was restored again upon the earth after 1260 years of earthly apostasy. You see how these likenesses work? Essentially, what happened in the premortal church of God and in John's description of premortality was in the likeness of what happens with the earthly church here upon the earth that gets described in verses 12 through 17 of Revelation 12. But what's important to understand is the war couldn't begin in heaven until Michael and his angels returned from the wilderness to Kolob so they could duke it out with each other. And you had two sides in the conflict where the major emphasis and objective of the war in heaven was missionary work. We're fighting for that one-third, that middle undecided group, 
trying who now keep in mind they had for maybe 450 million years they've been buffeted by satan and and they've had some time to think about about their decision and now that they've been softened up a little bit maybe they're beginning to see the light and say you know what i think that uh, i want to choose for michael and his angels who are teaching me the restored gospel of Jesus Christ that has been brought to us from heaven. And now we have this uh, this dispute where there can be no neutrals. Now, at this point in time, those of you who have been lukewarm for this long period since the Grand Council, you have to make a decision. If you decide to accept the covenants of the gospel in premortality, you will keep your first estate. And if you fail to do so, then you are going to be part of Satan's kingdom and will be denied a physical body on the earth because you will not have kept your first estate. And keep in mind that even though there were a lot of people that ultimately decided to accept gospel covenants in premortality, there were some who did it with uh, more valiance than others. Uh, and so you have this great gradation of uh, spirits between those uh, on Lucifer's hand on the one side and uh, the noble and great on the other side. So now that's uh, essentially where we begin the war in heaven. Now let me just talk a little bit more and give a little bit more information about the physical creation that is occurring during the war in heaven on celestial worlds because it's during this time that Jesus Christ began the creation of celestial worlds. Now, why would he begin to create celestial worlds coinciding with the start of the war in heaven? The reason is, is because when the war in heaven began, that's when the final testing occurred for the spirit children of our Heavenly Father, where they could actually keep their first estate. The gospel had come back. They make covenants. They keep their first estate. Well, once they do that and the decision has been made, they're ready to take the next step into mortality. And if they're ready to take that step, we need some physical worlds for them to go to. So during this war in heaven, as uh, Christ is creating physical earths, he's doing it to accommodate the spirits who have then kept their first estate. And they didn't all make that decision together. You know, they, they decided it at different times, just like we do in our mortal lives. And so as the people accepted the, the gospel, kept their first estate, boom, let's send a group of them down to this earth. And when that earth was full and after it served the measure of its uh, creation and uh, died, and we have another earth that comes into existence consecutively, then we've got another group of people that are ready to go. And it continues on for however many physical celestial worlds were created by the Savior until we come to this earth with Kolob as its spirit world, as its center. And this is where Lucifer ultimately gets kicked out to. Why does he get kicked out onto this earth specifically? Because every everything else was taken. It's all that was left. And so the, uh, the spirits that were still remained on Kolob with Lucifer, they get kicked out onto this earth. And the pattern is the same on all worlds and on all earths. In other words, a certain number of sons of perdition, unembodied, 
were cast down on an earth with a certain number uh, in a two to one ratio probably um, who went down to the, the first earth and, and it continued on. Now this is described in good detail in Doctrine and Covenants section 88 verses 51 through 61 which is the parable of the Lord of the fields, at least that's what I call it. This parable describes the consecutive nature of creations and Christ Jehovah's ministry on each of the worlds that he created during this period of time as the war in heaven was going on. But the bottom line is the physical creation of celestial worlds during the war in heaven were done to keep pace with the number of God's spirit children that had a that had kept their first estate, and so they all accommodate these uh, uh, these fixed numbers of God's spirit children. The earthly assignments were not random; they're not a matter of chance or just uh, whatever. It's all governed by the order of creation, as I've described to you uh, previously. So essentially, the war in heaven, as you will see, was a war of attrition. That as fixed numbers of God's spirit children. Uh, participated in this war and once they were gone they didn't come back and so the number of people human spirits in pre-mortality that were on Kolob continued to diminish 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 as the war went on until we get down to this earth and all that is left are Lucifer and some portion of those that were his unembodied sons of perdition who get cast out last of all onto this earth. And once that happens, then essentially you've cleaned out Kolob and you have a number of the great spirits who were battling Lucifer who then get assigned to come to this earth. And in a very real sense, this earth consists of the worst of the worst sons of perdition, unembodied spirits who have their influence on this earth and the best of the best, those noble and great spirits, Michael and his hosts of heaven, who were fighting for the uh, the sons and daughters of God uh, and trying to do the best missionary work they could to convert these undecideds to come to this to this life, and uh, and that's essentially what uh, what the war in heaven consists of and how it correlates to the physical creation. Uh, that was ongoing during the time that the uh, war in heaven was occurring. We then come to Revelation chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, which is a further description of the war of he war in heaven. And and candidly, I'm I'm not going to spend much time going through uh, these verses because I do think in general we all have a pretty good sense of what was going on in the uh, pre-mortal war in heaven. And I don't think you need me to explain much about that to you. And you can read those verses uh, based on the contextual information that I have already given to you. And uh, you'll be able to understand them with, uh, without further elaboration on my part. So I'm gonna move right directly to Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. Okay, now this is, this is where we reach that milestone verse where we're now making the transition from the pre-mortal existence to the mortal existence. And the verses that follow are then going to be a description of the earthly church. And so Revelation 12, 12 says, quote, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth 
that he hath but a short time. Now I have to warn you that most scholars believe that the woe mentioned here in verse 12 coincides with the end of the war in heaven, but that is not the case. And I, I get it. It seems like a logical thing to conclude that we just ended the war in heaven and now there's this pronouncement about a woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the war in heaven has ended, Satan is down on earth, and he's ready to duke it out with uh, all kinds of people here upon the earth. Uh, but it's, uh, this is not a reference to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea as existed at the time of the physical creation. And what we're talking about here is essentially at the time that Adam and Eve were on the earth. And there are several reasons why that's not the case. Uh, first of all, you have to understand that when Lucifer was cast down at the time of the creation, when this woe is supposedly occurring, there were no inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, right? We just got done creating the earth and Lucifer gets cast out and then the peopling of the earth occurs after that. And so uh, essentially the, the woe wouldn't have much meaning in that context because there's no one on earth to hear it. They, they wouldn't be making this pronouncement to people that did not even exist upon the earth to begin with. The, the woe applies a long period of time after the creation when, according to this verse, it says that Satan knoweth that he hath but a short time that could not be a comment that would be attributable to Satan at the time of the physical creation for a couple of reasons. Number one, the physical creation was the start of this earth, not its end when Satan would lose his power. And so in, in relationship to this earth itself, uh, he had no more time on this earth than possibly could exist because if, it, if the woe occurred at the creation, then this earth still had its entire life left ahead of it. Um, but the other thing is that Satan, at the time of the creation, could not know that he had a short time because if you asked him, essentially when he got cast down on this earth to fight uh, and to tempt people and to try and thwart the atonement of Jesus Christ, as far as he was concerned, he was going to succeed in that endeavor. And so we see the temptations of the, sa of the Savior uh, on the Mount of Temptation, as recorded in the book of Matthew, and uh, Satan was thinking, I'm still going to prevail. He had it in his head that he was going to prevail, and that was his mindset up until the meridian of time in Christ's mortal ministry. So if this woe was something that was pronounced back at the time of the creation, I don't think it's proper to say that Satan then knew that he had a short time because as far as he's concerned, he was still going to prevail. Now, the other problem with associating the woe with the physical creation of the earth is the fact that uh, Michael, who was the pre-mortal Adam, could not be in two places at one time. And uh, that would have been the case if this woe was pronounced at the time of the physical creation. That is Michael on the one hand who just defeated Satan 
uh, in pre-mortality, uh, it is hearing the woe and is the, the captain of the host. Well, he hasn't become Adam yet, but if he was, then he'd have to be in both places at the same time to be the recipient of the, uh, the woe um, that was being pronounced here. So when we talk about Revelation 12.9, um, we're also talking there about the uh, Lucifer being cast out at the end of the war in heaven. And when that's pronounced in Revelation 12.9, the verb tense was in the past tense. Okay, so what we learn in Revelation 12.9 is that Lucifer, quote, was cast out, close quote, in a past tense at the end of the war in heaven. But notice the language here in Revelation 12, 12, where the woe is given, it says, the devil is come down to you uh, having great wrath. In other words, the verb tense has changed. It's not that he was cast down, it's that its present is come down unto you. So we, we get these differences in verb tenses, which suggests that we're not talking about the same being cast out in the same context and certainly not in the same verb tense. And so essentially what this means is that John's visionary flashback of the pre-mortal existence ends in verse 11. Now keep in mind, I'm not saying that the entire flashback is done. This flashback lasts for three chapters as I have mentioned. What I'm saying is that the flashback to the pre-mortal existence portion, portion of the flashback ends in verse 11 and now we're moving into the mortal ministry time period of the Savior in verse 12. It's still part of the overall flashback but we've now shifted from pre-mortality to the meridian of time and that's why we're getting these differences in verb tenses and why you see that the verb tense is in the present because guess what we're now john is describing something that's occurring in his period of time his lifetime for him it is a present condition and so he begins to describe it with a present verb tense and so th this is the new vision now finally the last reason why we can conclude that the uh, Revelation 12.12 12 and, uh, and the woe does not occur at the time of the physical creation of the earth, but occurs at the time of the Savior's crucifixion and in John's time period is because essentially Joseph Smith makes that very clear in the Joseph Smith translation. So what happens is when Joseph Smith did his translation, he took verses 11 and 12 in the book of Revelation from the King James Version. Uh, and, well, he took verse 12 and he divided it into two pieces. He included part of it in Revelation 12:11. He added then a transitional phrase in verse 12 and then finished up with the language that is already in the King James Version. So now that I've kind of explained that to you, let me put up on the screen the King James Version of Revelation 12.12 12, and the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 12.11 and 12.12. 12. So let me read the, the, the King James Version first and then we'll circle back to the changes in the Joseph Smith translation. So, quote, in 12.12, 12, Therefore, 
rejoice ye, and ye that dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you. And then it continues. Now, going to the Joseph Smith translation, it says, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and ye that dwell in them. And then Joseph Smith, he makes his trans, he adds his uh, transitional verse, uh, his transitional phrase here at the start of Joseph Smith translation, Revelation 12, 12, saying, quote, And after these things, I heard another voice saying, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, yea, and they who dwell upon the islands of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you. So for those of you who have the good fortune of being able to see this on the screen, you'll see that the uh, uh, I bolded those portions of the Joseph Smith translation that have been added into the original King James Version. And in bold you have these words from the transitional phrase, and after these things, I heard another voice saying, and then Joseph Smith also added, yea, and they who dwell upon the islands of the sea. Now that transitional phrase is very, very important because this is where we get not only a change in the verb tense, but there's actually a completely different voice who then begins to describe to John what is happening at the time that this woe is given to the inhabitants of the earth. And that clearly makes a delineation and distinction between the vision in premortality and the vision that John is about to unfold concerning events during his time period, but on the earth as well. Now, let me add just one other thing that uh, uh, Joseph Smith added these words, yea, and they who dwell upon the islands of the sea. Now that, it kind of begs the question, (laughs) why does that even get added in? How how much difference is that between when it says the inhabitants, uh, there's a woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, and Joseph Smith says, well, there's a woe to the inhabitants of the earth, yea, and they who dwell upon the islands of the sea. Why do we need to know about these islands? And uh, the significance of that is that essentially it means, symbolically speaking and metaphorically speaking, we cannot be talking about the time period of the physical creation for the simple fact that when the physical earth was created, there were no islands of the sea. Remember? When the earth was created, there was this supercontinent that uh, Alfred Wegener uh, identified as Pangaea. And we believe that's the case in scripture as well, that at the time the earth was created and before Noah's flood, there was just this one supercontinent. So there were no islands upon the sea. So if the woe to the inhabitants was occurring at the time of the physical creation, When there was a supercontinent and no islands, then Joseph Smith's translation wouldn't make any sense. But if, as I'm suggesting, the woe to the inhabitants of the earth came after the flood, of course, and I'm saying it occurred in the time of Christ, which by the time of Christ, yes, we have islands upon the sea, which had existed since the time of the flood. 
And so it makes perfect sense. When Joseph Smith adds that this notion of the islands of the sea, he's categorically rejecting the idea that this woe to the inhabitants was occurring at the time of the physical creation. So now with that in mind, as we're talking about who this woe was going to, uh, it says uh, essentially the uh, it's to the inhabitants of the earth, and it, then it says, "For the devil is come down unto you," right? And so we actually kind of have to ask ourselves the question about what does that really mean. So let let me read the entire verse again, um, and we're going to put it up on the screen. Just Revelation uh, twelve twelve. Uh, and this is just the King James Version now, even though we know the JST is out there. But it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And so the when we get to this idea that he's come down unto you, who is the you that we're talking about? <laughs> and as we're thinking about this question of, who, who is the you? I can't help but think about the movie Babe, uh, which is the uh, the movie about the uh, the little pig who thinks he's a, a sheep pig. And uh, he was at Hoggett's farm, and uh, he, he liked to uh, herd the sheep. And so one day, before we figured out that he's a sheep pig, uh, he happened to be going over, trying to checking things out, went over to the shed, and locked up in this shed was Ma, a sheep who was locked up because she wasn't feeling too good and so babe is kind of talking to her uh, outside the door and she's on the inside and babe asks who are you and ma's response is i'm a you <laughs> so babe says no 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 who are you and she responds again, I'm a you, as in E-W-E, right? And so finally, Babe figures out that that the when she says, I'm a you, she's a sheep. But he says, oh, you're a sheep. <laughs> and, uh, and Ma said, well, I'll not be called a common sheep. <laughs> and that, of course, was the start of a great uh, friendship between Babe and uh, Ma. But the, the idea of who are you in verse number 12 refers to the Jews including including the Jewish Christians that lived in John's day and time and so the devil is come down to you Jews you Jewish Christians and he's he's not in a happy mood he's not a happy camper and why is he not a happy camper and why does he have this great wrath well he knows that he hath a short time and why does he now know that his time is short it's because the Savior has successfully completed the atonement in Gethsemane and on the cross he has died and has been resurrected and so now he knows that is Satan knows the die is cast there's nothing he can do to stop the atonement from having efficacy on this earth and in the lives of all people and throughout infinity, the infinity of the worlds created by Jesus Christ, um, he has the power to redeem them. And so that he now knows, and he also knows that his time of power on the earth is now short because it's, a, it's just a short hop and a skip from the time of the crucifixion in about 35 AD 
until the second coming when Satan would be bound and uh, would no longer have power upon the earth. And so uh, all of these things come into play in terms of the timing of when Satan knew uh, that his time was short. And so um, moving on, we need to talk just a little bit about the history of the church as it's described in verses 13 through 17. And I'll simply preface this by saying that the period of time in these verses is going to cover the period from roughly 35 AD until 70 AD. And I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. I think I've kind of given everybody the idea that before verse 12 is premortal, after verse 12 it's mortal, and it's in the meridian of time. And now to be more specific, we're talking specifically about the period from 35 AD to 70 AD. I'm not going to get into a great deal of commentary on it um, because we're already spending a lot of time and, and we need to move on. And I will circle back, I promise you, and I will talk about these verses in some detail. But for just uh, kind of the 30,000 foot view, Revelation 12:13 says, quote, and when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child, close quote. And you can see here where we're starting to see not a discussion of the woman and her bringing forth the man-child in premortality. That's a marker for saying that same woman who brought forth the man-child as the premortal church in the premortal existence back in verse 2 is now the same woman that we're seeing on earth, but now she is the earthly church. And we're just simply saying it's the same woman. So this verse is not saying that a woman, a church on earth, brought forth the man-child. It's just saying, remember that woman who brought forth the man-child in premortality? Well, now we're looking at her again in an earthly context. That's how you have to understand this. And so the devil now is persecuting that woman who is now evolved into, moved forward in time until she is now the earthly church and the devil's mad and uh, he wants to get her. And, and that's what's going on and that's the description of the events in Revelation chapter 12 verse 13. Then we come to Revelation chapter 12 verse 14 and this is what it says, quote, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Now I already did the comparison you'll recall between this verse 14 and Revelation 12:4, where we had the premortal woman who was being taken into heaven I, I, excuse me, I, ma I made a mistake there. I needed to say 12.6. That's the great apostasy in heaven. And now we're here in 14. And I put those side by side previously. And so here we have her, essentially, now she's on earth. And a lot of people interpret this to mean that because she's being these wings of a great eagle and flying into the wilderness, that's the apostasy. But that's actually not correct. Because the wings, first of all, represent divine intervention. You do have the Father divinely intervening on behalf of the woman who is the ancient church against a lot of the persecution that she was facing. 
both from, uh, well, primarily and principally, initially, from the Jews, all right? And so the woman is going to be given some protection against them. Now, the eagle is a symbol that at the time of John represented the national emblem or standard for the Roman Empire. And so we have the eagle basically protecting the church, and it happens in the wilderness, which represents a place of spiritual of, of refuge. All right, so collectively speaking, what all of these symbols mean together is that the ancient church found divine refuge in the wilderness of the Roman Empire. What it means essentially is, is that after Christ was crucified, during the period of the apostles or the apostolic period, when the church experienced tremendous growth, that happened because of the protections afforded by the Roman Empire. Now, at this point in time, the Roman Empire didn't have any religion of its own, and it was generally tolerant of all religions, with some exceptions that we'll talk about on another day. But essentially, you think about the 35 years from the crucifixion of Christ until about 70 AD, the church experienced this tremendous growth. You had Paul, who was the champion of the Christian cause in the Roman wilderness for almost three decades. And even though the church endured a lot of trials and chastening and persecutions from among the Jews and then more and more so from the Romans, uh, it all tended to enhance their faith and made them very strong in their commitment to the church of Jesus Christ. And so as strange as it sounds, when the church flew into the Roman wilderness away from Jerusalem and the heart of the Jewish persecutions against the church, she was literally nourished and grew and flourished in the Roman wilderness. Now, you can kind of compare this to uh, the wilderness of the Salt Lake Valley. When the early saints in, in our history face great tribulations, whether it be in New York or Ohio or Missouri or Nauvoo, winter quarters, and then eventually they go all the way out to the Salt Lake Valley where they're then nurtured in that wilderness. And in the same way, the, the saints were nurtured in the Roman wilderness where they flourished for, you know, almost 30 years. Uh, and certainly the Roman uh, persecutions then grew with the coming of Nero in about 64 AD. Um, and uh, the persecutions really uh, grew in leaps and bounds. But up until then, essentially it was a very nurturing environment for the Jews, or for the Jewish church and uh, the Christian church. And so that's essentially what is being described here in verse 14. It's not the apostasy yet. And John doesn't get to a description of the apostasy until Revelation chapter 13. So keeping in mind that everything goes in its order, first we have to get through the apostolic period and the growth of the church in that time before we eventually get to the uh, <clears throat> great apostasy that occurs as uh, you get apostasy from within the church and not because of persecution from outside the church so much. Um, the In this verse we also get the uh, idea about uh, she being nourished for a time and a times and a half time from the face of the servant. Now, what does that mean? 
that that language actually comes from Daniel chapter 7 specifically verse 25 which uses the same phrase and it's a phrase a symbolic phrase that is used to identify a season when Satan has great power upon the earth but essentially it's measured uh, as one year or one time period being one then two years or two time periods being two and then the half year or half a time you add up a time a times and a half time you get three and a half times or one year plus two years plus a half year equals three and a half years and that's the same thing as 42 months or 1260 days but in this case you have the three and a half times being multiplied or intensified by the number 10 to give us the 35 years or three and a half decades of the apostolic period running from roughly 35 uh, AD until 70 AD when you had the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish nation and essentially Satan the red dragon had his way with his uh, great wrath that he had come down to so when when the warning was given that uh, the Satan has come down unto you inhabitants of the earth and he's coming with great wrath well that ultimately was fulfilled in very large measure uh, when the Roman dragon uh, destroyed God's temple in Jerusalem and it was the same warning that the Savior said so if you think about the woe to the inhabitants of the earth that was given the same thing was occurring with the Savior on the Mount of Olives the night before his crucifixion when he told the, his disciples that uh, there was going to be this abomination of desolation that ultimately came about in 70 AD. So essentially what you have is one half of the 70 years or 35 years of this time and times and half time all fits into the concept that Revelation 12:14 is not talking about the great apostasy as many people suggest we're talking here about the church being nurtured in the uh, Roman Empire or the Roman wilderness for this 35 years um, and then we uh, go from about 70 AD and continue on where what we have is the serpent then trying to still go after the woman and the remnant of her seed. So let me put up, uh, for those of you who are seeing the video, uh, the verses Revelation 12, 15 through 17, and we'll see how these all fit together now. This verse says, these verses say, quote, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so all of this is very consistent with the, the serpent going after the woman. The, the flood, of course, is metaphorical and we'll talk about that in more detail later on. The the indication that the earth helps the woman opened uh, her mouth and swallowed up the flood you know those are some complicated symbols that I don't know that we have any good answers to describe what those are but the bottom line is as of 70 AD 
after the dragon had succeeded in destroying Jerusalem and the temple and the Jewish nation and had been going after the uh, Christian saints just as much as he could and trying to wrap them up in with his war, he was not successful. And we know that he was not successful because at the time of John's vision in 96 AD, there were still remnants of the church that existed in these seven churches that John wrote his letter to. And so here in, in verse 17, where it is describing how this, the dragon was wroth. Why? Because he didn't succeed in wiping out the Christian church in 70 AD, even though he destroyed the Jewish nation and the Jewish religion, um, he did not destroy Christianity. And so now he's mad again, you know, that's just his nature and disposition. And then after this, he goes to make war with the remnant of her seed. In other words, whoever is left after 70 AD and all these bad things, that is who he is now making war with. And this precedes the, the great apostasy when he ultimately does succeed in destroying all of Christ's church upon the earth in every possible place, including the Eastern Hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere, and so on. Okay, we're not there yet in Revelation chapter 12, 17. Right now, he's still making war with the remnant of his seed. But that's that's the context of these verses. And that I didn't go over them in great detail, but I will at some time in the future. You just need to understand that the remnant being referred to here in 1217 is the rising generation of Christians after 70 AD. And that's where we leave off in Revelation chapter 12 and we roll right into Revelation chapter 13 as a continuation of John's flashback. In other words, there's no interruption between what John saw at the end of Revelation 12 and what he sees at the beginning of Revelation chapter 13. Now, by way of overview of 13, what you need to understand is that this chapter represents a description and discussion of Satan's kingdom as it existed from 70 AD until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that's a, you know, 2,000 year period of time that we're covering here in this one chapter. And it's easy to see how it starts in Revelation uh, or in, in uh, 70 AD because that's where we left off in Revelation chapter 12. Now, so this 2,000 year history is going to include all of the following. It's going to include Satan's universal dominion on the earth during the great apostasy and that's covered in verses 1 through 8 of Revelation chapter 13. Then after you get through the great apostasy what's the next thing that happens in history? Well we have the the Renaissance and we have the Reformation as precursors to the restoration of the gospel in 1830. So that's what you get in verses 9 and 10. You get the, uh, the a description in symbolic terms about the captivity of the saints, quote-unquote saints, of the Renaissance and Reformation. Then we come down to, after, chapter, after verse 10, the last verses in chapter 13, which are 11 through 18, we have the growing dominion of Satan's kingdom in the latter days after 1830. Now, why do we pick 1830? Well, that, of course, is the restoration of the gospel, and that's when you get this transition from the first beast to the second beast. So really, in very simple terms, in Revelation chapter 13, you've got these two beasts. The first beast 
represents Satan's kingdom and his dominion in the Roman Empire until the, the time period of 1830 when the gospel is restored. That's the first beast. And then in verse 11, when you get this second beast, that's when the gospel is restored and the first beast evolves into a second beast. They're not completely different. Again, everything is evolutionary. And so it is this transition, this growth, just like the woman grows from a pre-mortal woman to the woman in the meridian of time to the woman who's the restored church to the woman who's the millennial church to the woman who's the celestial church. It's an evolutionary process. And so the same thing is happening with Satan's kingdom where we start out with the first beast and then that first beast then eventually evolves into the second beast in uh, verse uh, 10, or excuse me, verse 11 of Revelation chapter 13. Now, I just want to highlight one other verse for you in this series. And again, I'm not going to go into details. I'm kind of flying at about the 100,000 foot level right now on chapter 13 because uh, these are all things I'm going to have to cover in the future. There's just, there's just too much here to talk about. But I did want to uh, give you one other verse that I wanted to mention so that it will help you as you read chapter 13 to put things into context with things that are a matter of history. So if you take a look at Revelation 13:3, it says this, quote, And I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, I haven't gone into any detail about this beast, but he has these seven heads and ten horns and, and all of these other kinds of things, which we're not going to get into the symbolism, but and it's not important to understand for purposes of this verse what is happening. What is important is that this beast, this first beast, as a matter of history, had one of its heads that were wounded to death, and then somehow that wound was healed. And this is a verse that has a lot of discussion and lots and lots of interpretation, but it's really very, very simple when you understand the time frame of Revelation 13 starting in 70 AD and then continuing to the second coming. What the, the wound that we're talking, and keep in mind, I have to digress just a second. Remember I said that this first beast represents Satan's dominion in the Roman Empire. So we have to put ourselves in the context of the Roman Empire and what happened in the Roman Empire that could be said that the, the Roman Empire or one of the heads of the Roman Empire was wounded to death but then somehow was healed. And it's pretty obvious uh, if you just kind of step back and look at it even objectively. What we're talking about here is the fall of the Imperial Roman Empire in 476 AD. That's when the head of the beast, this Roman Empire, when it was wounded to death. And the Roman Empire came to its death in 476 as the Germanic hordes and nations from the north came down and they came into Rome and they, they uh, you know, kind of kicked tail and took names, all right? Uh, that's what happened. And so the Roman Empire was defeated. And so how did it get healed? Well, it got healed through the rise of what is known as the Holy Roman Empire when the pontiffs and the popes came to great power and the, the conquerors 
uh, of these Germanic nations and the nations in the north who conquered the Roman Empire essentially then gave ecclesiastical control of their nations uh, back to the popes and pontiffs. And so you had the rise of the Holy Roman Empire that healed the deadly wound of the Imperial Roman Empire in 476. Now this didn't happen overnight. The rise of the Holy Roman Empire was probably a process that took some two, three hundred years so that by roughly about 800 AD is when you had the first emperors of the Holy Roman Empire who were established and put into place by none other than the Roman Church and the popes and pontiffs in Rome who basically dictated a lot of things uh, secularly through their ecclesiastical control. So that's, I give you that as this, this mile marker as you kind of read these verses in Revelation chapter 13 so you can say, oh, got it. That's the, uh, the fall of Imperial Rome and the rise of the Holy Roman Empire. And then as you come into the, uh, the last verses in chapter 13, starting from 11 through 18, this is where, again, you get the evolving kingdom of this second beast uh, from that point until the second coming. And uh, this was a time when essentially Satan's uh, counterfeit church, his counterfeit uh, kingdom that was always opposed to the church of Jesus Christ, now grows in equal opposition to the LDS church that was restored in 1830. And Brigham Young had this to say about the nature of how kingdoms rise in response to and in relationship one to another. He said this, um, quote, It was revealed to me in the commencement of this church that the church would spread, prosper, grow, and extend and that in proportion to the spread of the gospel among the nations of the earth, so would the power of Satan rise. Close quote. And that's Brigham Young from uh, volume 13 of the Journal of Discourses at page 280. And so what, what that tells us, and Joseph Smith made similar statements as well. Uh, essentially, when the restoration of the church occurred in 1830, it was a whole new ball game for Satan's kingdom. And uh, we'll get into it in more detail, but essentially Satan's kingdom evolved. And it's the same period of time when we see the Holy Roman Empire coming to an end with the process of the Reformation and the Reformation then stripping from the Holy Roman Empire much of its ecclesiastical and secular control. So even as what we see in history leading up to the restoration of the gospel is a matter of historical fact, we see that being described by John in Revelation 13 and the evolution from the first beast, which was the Roman Empire, to the second beast, which is not something that you would equate specifically with the Roman Empire, because by that time in 1830, the Holy Roman Empire is on its way out and no longer has the kind of power that the Imperial Roman Empire once had before its fall and then when its deadly wound was healed again. So I think that should be sufficient information uh, to deal with uh, Revelation 13 to help you kind of read that and get the context of what is being discussed in these verses with, the, with one exception. I will add one more thing. You have to understand that by the time you get down to Revelation 13, 13, 
that is the point in time when the second beast has reached the pinnacle of its power or the height of its power about three and a half years before the second coming to a time that corresponds with the gathering at Adam on Diamond. And so now I'm going to read that verse and then restate what the time period is so you can understand what it is here that we're talking about. So in Revelation 13, 13, it says, quote, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven and on the earth in the sight of men. So as you read that verse and you're wondering, when is the time period when this is happening? I'm giving that time period to you right now. It coincides with the gathering at Adam and and three and a half years before the uh, second coming so that you can understand that everything described past that point isn't something that you should be thinking hey has this happened has this happened uh you know you're going to get satan who has the control over uh, markets and the ability to buy and sell as you read about these things there toward the end of revelation 13 understand that those are things that are not describing events in our time right now as we live during the period of the sixth seal, Revelation 13, 13 through 18 is roughly in the period of the seventh seal and specifically the last three and a half years before the second coming that we call the Great Tribulation. So don't get too anxious and nervous. A lot of people talking about, you know, Satan's going to control the world and I think it's Amazon. I think they're in control. It's got... <laughs> I'm not saying that they don't play some role in the future. All I'm suggesting is we aren't there yet. Don't worry about it too much. Uh, just continue to live your life uh, as righteously as you can. And uh, we'll deal with those things when we get there. As we say in the Marine Corps, we'll fall off that bridge when we get to it. Okay, so that's all I'm going to talk about uh, with uh, Revelation 13. Yeah, we didn't get to talk about the 666 or anything. We'll talk about it later on. Um, and so we get to Revelation chapter 14. Essentially, remember, I said everything occurs chronologically. So when I said that by the end of chapter 13, we've reached the last three and a half years coming up to the second coming, Revelation chapter 14 is at the second coming um, and up to the, set, the end of the second woe at the second coming. Now, I talked about these woes a little bit in the last one, but by way of a refresher course, the second woe ends when the two witnesses in Jerusalem have died uh, their dead bodies lay in the streets for three and a half days, uh, and then suddenly they resurrect, and we hear a voice from heaven announce, that's the end of the second woe, the third woe cometh quickly. That's the context that we're talking here about in Revelation chapter 14. So it's very, very close to the second coming, but it is prior to the third woe, that is announced in Revelation chapter 11. So what is Revelation 14? Well, Revelation chapter 14, by way of overview, is going to describe a, a destruction of the second beast at the second coming, and it occurs without interruption 
after Revelation 13. Again, there's no break. We're just continuing to roll in John's chronological account. And this follows the horrors of the Great Tribulation, including the abomination of desolation at the second coming. Um, and essentially, Revelation 14 is juxtaposed to the vision that we've been seeing in Revelation 13. That is, in Revelation 13, we saw the history of Satan's kingdom from 70 AD up until the second coming, and now we jump to a heavenly scene and we see God's heavenly kingdom in heaven at the same conclusion of Revelation chapter 13. That is, right as the second woe ends and as we're getting ready to go into the third woe. So that's the context. So in Revelation 14.1, and again, I, I will caution you and just warn you, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly just to give you a sense of the the context so that as you read them you will have a foundational structure for your understanding of them without me trying to explain every single little detail because I'll, I'll do that in the future. So essentially Revelation 14.1 describes the 144,000 servants that are standing with Christ on Mount Zion. These are the same 144,000 that were sealed with the seal of God, with the seal of the living God in their forehead in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. And the difference is that, that those verses in Revelation chapter 7 were in the context of what John was seeing during the sixth seal, and now he's seeing the 144,000 as they will exist at the time of the second coming. Again, everything is evolutionary, everything is chronological, and now we did all that work of sealing everybody in the sixth seal so that now by the time the seventh seal rolls around and the second coming is here, congratulations, voila, these 144,000 servants, which is purely a symbolic number, get to stand with Christ on Mount Zion, all right? And so that's what we're seeing here. Now the revelation in verse 14 has three visionary parts. In, in the first five verses, essentially what you're seeing is John's vision of heaven at and just before the second coming. This gives hope to all the righteous people that are going to be living during the Great Tribulation because if you survive those three and a half years, those last three and a half years and you make it, guess what? You get to stand with Christ on Mount Zion in heaven. So that's going to be a really good time, I hear. Um, and then the second part of Revelation 14 is this description of these seven angels that describe seven conditions during the Great Tribulation. And so this is just before the seven vile plagues of the third woe begin. And so I'm going to describe these angels just a little bit and jump forward just for a second to say the third part of John's uh, visionary uh, vision in Revelation 14 deals with the harvest the harvest of exaltation worthy people and the harvest of sons of perdition. And that's the last part of the vision in Revelation 14 verses 14 through 20. So now let me circle back to, uh, we already know what's going on in the first part. Let's start with these angels, these seven angels that John describes in Revelation chapter 14. The first angel is one that we're all pretty much familiar with in Revelation 14, 6 through 7. In this one, we have the angel flying through the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel 
that must go forth to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. And everybody says, oh, yeah, 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 gotcha. That's Moroni. Well, yes, it is, but no, it's not also. Um, clearly, Moroni is part of this uh, revelation or this vision of this first angel. But the difference here is John's focus is not on what's happening back in 1830. Again, don't break the rules. Keep everything in context and understand that we're talking now about a proclamation that is made as of the time approaching the second coming. It's not the time when Moroni first showed up in 1827 to proclaim the everlasting gospel through the introduction of the Book of Mormon. We're now talking about a proclamation here at the time of the second coming when essentially the, the angel's work has been fulfilled. In other words, Moroni's work of bringing the everlasting gospel to all nations has actually happened. It has to happen because that's the only way that we can have the second coming. The second coming doesn't get to occur until the gospel has gone forth. And now we have a proclamation by this first angel saying, ta-da, it's happened. The everlasting gospel has gone forth. Not that it is going to go forth, but it's happened. And so now we're ready for the second coming to occur. The second angel is in Revelation 14, 8, which proclaims the spiritual fall of modern Babylon. And without getting into a lot of detail, I'll simply state that modern Babylon falls spiritually at the time of the gathering at Adam on Diamond. Now, the fact that modern Babylon falls spiritually tells you immediately, oh, there must also be a physical fall of modern Babylon. Yeah, that will happen, but that's only going to happen after the third woe. Right now, we're talking about a spiritual fall that occurs during the period of the second woe when modern Babylon falls. And how does it fall spiritually? It's because when Christ comes back to Adam on Naaman for his coronation and he receives all the keys for his earthly reign as king of king and lord of lords on the earth, well, guess what? As soon as his kingdom starts to rise spiritually, Satan's kingdom, modern Babylon, starts to fall spiritually. They go hand in hand. And so that's what that second angel is describing. Then the third angel is a proclamation of God's wrath at the end of the great tribulation. And then what happens is after he makes the proclamation about God's wrath and the really nasty stuff that is going to happen as we start getting ready to go into the third woe is John takes a little bit of a break in verses 12 and 13 and he first consoles and praises the righteous saints that will live during the great tribulation. And then in verse 13, he consoles the righteous saints that die as martyrs during the Great Tribulation. So after these consolation of both those that survive and those that die, all of whom get to end up on Mount Zion standing with the Savior in chapter 14. Now that then brings us to Revelation 14 verses 14 through 20. And this, as I mentioned, is the third visionary part of John's three-part vision. And the activities of these last four of seven angels I refer to as the harvest angels. Because essentially what we're dealing with here are two separate harvests. Think about the parable 
of the wheat and the tares. What happens in the parable? The first thing that happens is, well, we know we're going to have a harvest, but the first harvest that occurs is first we harvest the wheat. And when the wheat has been harvested and bundled and taken into the barn for safe storage, then we gather the tares as a second part of the harvest. We bundle them up and then we burn them. That's what's happening in these verses. And so the first, and, and the people to be specific who were talking about harvesting, as I mentioned, there's an order of creation, there's an order of resurrection, and there is an order of destruction and harvest. And that's what we're describing. And so what we're going to start with here in terms of the order is we're first going to harvest the wheat which are going to be exaltation-worthy saints. And then we're going to harvest the quote-unquote tares, or as they're called here, the, the vineyard, or the grapes in this case. Um, they are going to be the mortal sons of perdition. Now, you'll remember when I was talking with you in a prior podcast about Armageddon and the, the order of destruction that needs to occur, I said that the celestial worthy people are going to survive physical Armageddon. We're specifically told that at the end of chapter 9 in verses 20 and 21 where it says that there's a certain number that will survive and of them are the murderers and the sorcerers and the liars and the thieves and all of these bad people who qualify themselves as celestial people. Well John tells us specifically they will survive the second woe. They will survive physical Armageddon. Only the people who are sons of perdition must die collectively and as a group before or by the end of the second woe. This is the harvest where this occurs. So to the extent that they aren't already dead by people killing people and the wicked killing the wicked, the Savior is going to take care of that group, these sons of perdition here in these verses found at the end of uh, chapter 14. So we begin with the first harvest angel in verse 14. This is also the fourth angel. So John continues using this number seven. This is the fourth angel of seven, but it's also the first harvest angel. And so what we see is one like unto the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ, who has a sharp sickle to gather the fully ripe wheat. That's exaltation worthy saints. Now this should come as a lot of, you should be thrilled. You should be doing cartwheels right now if you're living your life in harmony with celestial law and you are doing those things that will qualify you for exaltation because what, this is to you. This is talking to you. And people like you who are so qualified, they get to be harvested, not in a bad way, but in a really good way. You're the ones who end up with the Savior standing with him on Mount Zion. You're the bride of Christ. You're the ones that uh, will qualify to wear the wedding garment and to be with him and to be spared all of the really ugly things that are going to happen during the third woe. You won't be there for them because he's going to harvest you. Now, if you don't qualify for exaltation, you should be a little bit nervous. <laughs> get your life in order, repent, do whatever you need to do. Because, you know, if for no other reason than avoiding 
the really ugly things that are going to happen during the third woe, uh, you need to get your life in order so that you can be harvested and stand with Christ on Mount Zion. But that's what's happening here with the first harvest angel is Christ is getting ready to reap the wheat, gather the wheat. And so then we come down to the fifth angel who happens to be the second harvest angel in verses 15 and 16. And here, God the Father directs Christ to gather the first fruits of the righteous wheat. This is when the mourning of the first resurrection resumes at the second coming. You've heard all of these discussions, and, and this is something that we're all familiar with, that at the time of Christ's second coming, all of the righteous saints, those who have been in the grave, those who are alive, they get to rise up and meet the Savior in the clouds of heaven. It includes and probably begins with the resurrection of the two witnesses in Jerusalem. They're, they're the first ones. And when that happens, a whole bunch of people get to be resurrected in the morning of the first resurrection. That's what the Father directs the uh, the Savior to do. Now, this is before he comes down. This is you, you have to break these things down a little bit because the idea or the concept that we sometimes have in our mind is, is that we're going to have this resurrection. We're going to rise up to see Jesus Christ, and at the same time he's coming down, we'll just meet halfway into heaven and turn right around and come back down to earth with him. No, there's some, there's some things that have to happen. We're going to rise up at the end of the second woe, but we still have the third woe to contend with out in the future. But the good news is, for those of you who are exaltation worthy, whether you're dead, alive, indifferent, <laughs> in between, translated, whatever, um, you will rise up and you'll stand on Mount Zion. And then we have some other things that we'll talk about what happens, but that's in, that's in a later discussion. So that's, that's the, the harvest of the righteous wheat. That's what's happening. Then we come to the sixth angel in the series, which happens to be the third harvest angel in verse 17. Now that we've harvested the first fruits of the righteous wheat, time to turn our attention to the really bad guys. And so what we see in verse 17 is Jesus Christ poised again with his sharp sickle to reap and destroy the wicked tares. And in this context, rather than referring to them as tares, they're referred to as these fully ripened grapes. In other words, this is the vintage. He's going to go out and he's going to target specifically mortal sons of perdition, then living, who are these ripened grapes, and he's going to tread the winepress of God's almighty wrath as the second woe comes to an end. And that's what he is preparing himself to do. And then we come down to the fourth harvest angel, which is the seventh angel in the series, in verses 18 through 20. And now God the Father is directing Christ to destroy the mortal sons of perdition, these grapes, the tares, whatever you want to call them. And they're going to be destroyed in the, uh, the wine press. And their dead bodies will then be burned during the third woe with all other telestial worthy people. But again, the telestial worthy people survive. We've already learned that from Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. But they're going to get theirs during the third woe. So that's the end of chapter 14. And where does that leave us? Essentially, you have this massive slaughter at the end of the second woe in Revelation 14. And that completes the flashback that began in Revelation 12. Now, essentially, giving some context to this, you'll remember 
that this flashback began at the end of Revelation chapter 11. And in that context, John had ended his account of the second woe. And we got a brief introduction to the third woe in Revelation 11, 15 through 19. And then all of a sudden, boom, flashback. All right. Now, after the three chapter flashback that goes all chronologically, from the pre-mortal existence right back up to the end of the second woe. In other words, exactly right where John left off at the end of chapter 11. You roll into chapter 15, which is the introduction to the third woe. So if you were reading the book of Revelation and you knew everything that I've just told you about Revelation chapters 12 through 14, and you didn't want to bother with the flashback because you knew the content of those chapters anyway, what you could do is read and study up through the end of chapter 11, skip 12 through 14, and just read starting in Revelation chapter 15, 1, and you would not miss a beat. They are. There's no break in time between the end of Revelation 11 and the start of Revelation 15. That's the way the three-chapter flashback works. And so that's where John left off. And then in 15, he reintroduces the concept of the third woe, which consists of the seven vile plagues. And after he introduces them as concepts, then in Revelation 16 through 19 is where we actually get the seven vile plagues carried out in those chapters that follow. And that, of course, is a discussion for a, uh, a future day and a future podcast. So I hope you've enjoyed these verses uh, and these chapters. As I mentioned at the outset, they're, they're my favorite chapters in the book of Revelation just because there is so much and you learn so much by understanding these chapters and they give so much context to what John next describes at the time of the second coming. And uh, so uh, I just want to thank uh, Jenna Daly for helping me out with all the technical stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm not a real big salesman on trying to get the word out here, but if, if you found that these chapters are helpful and you know people who you think might be helped by uh, the discussion in these podcasts. If you could share them and uh, let other friends know, uh, I'd really appreciate it. I think it's important that these doctrines are known and understood. Uh, There's something that we have not always understood, uh, and I'll talk about that at a later date as to how confused some of these topics can be. But uh, I, I do want you to know that uh, these these discussions are things that are important for us to understand in the last days as we prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. So. Uh, check out these podcasts, get your friends to check them out, and you can also look at my uh, website at unveilingjesuschrist.com where I also have blogs and other things on related topics that I hope will be helpful and meaningful to you. So I'll see you next week.